Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Lord, Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. If a man remains in you, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Spirit of God, we ask you to take the things that are of Jesus and make them known to us. We ask in the name of Jesus to come and open up our eyes. It was 2005... And my wife and I were working among an unreached Muslim people group. And we were getting ready to move to a new area of our work in January of 2006. During the season leading up to our move, the Holy Spirit had been speaking to us about being braced for difficulty and prepared for Him to move quickly when we arrived. December of that year of 2005, just before we moved, I had a dream. In the dream, I was in an army headquarters, and I was sitting next to two or three other people, and we all had tests in our hands. And we were all fit trying to ask the Lord, you know, how do we, what do we do? How can we pass this test? And, and the general comes up to me, and he comes to all, up to all of us, and he says, if you want to know how to pass the test, look to the example of the Chinese church. And then I woke up from the dream. The next month, we moved to this new area of our work. It was a crazy place, but I I won't go into it. But uh, once we moved to this new area, about a week into our, our being there, a man showed up on our doorstep. I'll call him Muhammad. And... I got into a conversation with Muhammad, and before long, I realized that he was a man hungry for the gospel, asked him if he was uh, interested in hearing about it. He said yes, shared the gospel with him, he accepted the Lord, and he began making disciples, who began making disciples, who began making other disciples. Well, after two or three weeks, several house churches began to uh, emerge in different villages, a couple of different places, uh, actually a couple of different countries uh, where the people group, uh, they, they spilled over into two or three different countries there. And I began to hear stories. Muhammad would bring me stories day after day after day. He would bring me stories about how persecution was starting to pick up as the gospel was going forth, and as churches were beginning to multiply, and as disciples were making more disciples and sharing the gospel. One of the stories he brought to me, there was a a neighboring village, two house churches had emerged, and a man from another village visited this village, and while he was there, he, somebody shared the gospel with him. Well, the, the, the members of these two little house churches They came around him and prayed for him, and the Holy Spirit came upon him with such power and force 
that he immediately accepted the gospel, and within just a few days, he went, he got up from this village, he went to, back to his home village, and he stood up in the middle of the village, just a few days old in his faith, and he says, you all have been telling me lies all of my life. This is a 100% Muslim village. You've been telling me lies all of my life. This good news of the kingdom is going everywhere, and nothing can stop it. They stoned him, he lived, and then a house church was birthed in that village. Muhammad brought another testimony to me. Well, actually, he didn't bring this one to me. I actually was a part of this one, but there was a woman. I'll call her Khadija. That's not her real name, but uh, that's what we'll call her. It's an it's a Islamic name for uh, a lady. So Khadija had been listening to the Jesus film, uh, but she had never, she'd never actually uh, made a decision to accept Jesus. And Muhammad told me that, that the believers really thought that she was strategic to what God wanted to do among Muslim women in this people group. And so she was part of a family who was of a stricter sect or a stricter school of Islamic law. So they really, uh, the, the men in the household would keep a real tight uh, watch. They would really monitor the ladies in their home. Well, one day she was able to slip away from her job. And Muhammad called me and he said, we have a window of opportunity here. Can we, can we meet at your house? I said, we can't do that because our house is being watched. So I said, okay, what do we do here? And so we ended up arranging a meeting, a meeting place, and I hopped in the, the truck, sped off. They jumped, in, they jumped in the back. They laid low, and we drove off to the middle of the countryside and hid behind some trees, and we started sharing the gospel with her. We asked her if she wouldn't mind if we, we prayed for her. We prayed for her, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes and confirms the message. She begins to laugh. She begins to say, I feel joyful. She, what is this? I just feel joyful. I feel happy. I feel joyful. And, and uh, so then she got in, the, we got in the car. We're driving back, and she's still saying, I've never been so happy. I've never been so happy. And, and she, she goes, I don't care who knows. I'm... I've never been so happy, just going on and on and on, and we're just laughing with her, and we get, to the, we get back to the, the town and drop them off, and that night, Jesus visits her in a dream to encourage her. Now, she'd been abused by men all of her life, and now Jesus the Messiah begins to speak to her and teach her about true love. Well, a few days later, she was going to need that love to sustain her because her, uh, one of her relatives began reading the Quran over her and telling her it's time for her to come do her prayers. They would force the ladies to do their prayers at certain times of day and read the Quran over them. And she just, she gets this boldness that comes over her and says, I know the truth better than you do. <laughs> they didn't quite like that. And they suspected her of becoming an infidel. And so... Uh, this relative began to beat her. While he beats her, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon Khadija, and his hand begins to burn. And so his hand begins to burn. He, he's terrified, and he runs out the door, and he goes to get uh, some of his other relatives, 
And they come back, and their conclusion was, from this was, God must be burning you with fire and punishing you because you've become an infidel. And so they, began, they took out donkey whips and began to beat her with donkey whips. And they began to cite the Quran over her with a kind of a demonic frenzy. And she began to feel confusion. But in the midst of this, she never denied her faith. She stayed firm and loyal to Jesus to the end. And the power of God sustained her. That early on in her, in her faith journey, less than a week old, the power of God sustained her through that. Well, I'm getting stories like this. This one actually came after what I'm about to, uh, to tell you. But as, I'm, as, as, as stories about persecution are beginning to trickle in through Muhammad, one morning in prayer, I'm just asking the Lord, okay, Lord, what's happening out there? What's happening out there? And so I just was waiting on the Lord, and I immediately had a vision in my mind's eye. And in the vision, I saw a worm come up from the ground, and then I saw a bird And the bird swooped down and tried to take hold of that worm and uproot it from the ground, but the bird couldn't do it. So the bird retreated, and I knew that the bird was represented Satan. Then I saw the scene shift, and it suddenly was the cover of night, and I began to see thousands of earthworms coming up from the ground with little helmets on, with little lights on their helmets so that they could see under the cover of darkness. And they began, to work kind of, they began to work steadily under the cover of darkness, quietly, discreetly, but, but with intention, intentionality and purpose and boldness. Then I saw the worms come together, and they began to kind of interlock around each other, interweave themselves around each other, and they formed a hammer. Then I saw the birds swoop down again to try to, to eat these worms, but the hammer came down and smashed the worms, or excuse me, the hammer came down and smashed the bird, and then, that, then it, the vision was finished. I thought, that was incredibly weird, Lord. What in the world was that? And uh, odd or God, you know, or odd and God. So as soon as uh, I had that vision, as soon as it finished, I, ha- I felt this little whisper in my heart, O worm Jacob, O worm Jacob. And I thought, Bible passages, Bible passages, yes. And then I thought, Isaiah. So I looked it up in Isaiah. And I found the passage from uh, Isaiah 41. Let me just read it to you. It says, For I am the Lord, this is Isaiah 41, 13 through 16, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them. And reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. And so I, I, I was really impressed by that because the, the vision of the, the hammer, and now here he's likening them to a threshing sledge. And here they are, a weak people, but God comes to their rescue and delivers them. And so I said, okay, that's interesting, O worm Jacob. And uh, Psalm 22, Jesus on the cross calls himself a worm. We were watching the Passion of the Christ last night where the soldiers were beating him and they were making fun of him. They said, the the king of the worms, the wormy king. So after I read these verses, immediately a book was quickened in my heart that I I needed to pick it up right away 
It was a book I had purchased in Singapore earlier in 2005 on the Back to Jerusalem movement. I had just, the only time I looked through it was when I had first purchased it. I had browsed through the table of contents. I hadn't read through it since. I opened it up, and I couldn't believe what hit my eyes. It said, an army of worms. By this, okay, so I've got now a vision, Bible verses, and a book here. So I'm thinking, okay, God, maybe I'm actually, maybe this is you, you know. I read it, and here's what the Chinese church had to say. The Back to Jerusalem mission and the fulfillment of the Great Commission face powerful adversaries. Islam holds more than a billion souls in captivity and blindness. Buddhism and Hinduism have been established for more than 2,000 years. The devil feels safe in these strongholds that have largely gone unchallenged throughout Christian history. When faith-filled believers start taking flames of fire from God's altar into these dark regions, and those fires start spreading to others and the light increases, Satan will be furious. Satan will not surrender without a fierce fight. But when the devil fights against God's children, he is fighting against God himself. And our Lord's weakness is much stronger than the devil's strength. Nevertheless, we expect that much blood will be spilled. One of the most powerful ways we can overcome the spiritual giants of Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism is by witnessing with our own blood and laying down our lives. For each Christian that the devil tries to kill, the light of the gospel will shine a little brighter and his hold on the people will loosen little by little. It will not be an army of elephants that marches into nations like Saudi Arabia. Sometimes it seems as if a lot of mission effort consists of elephant plans, huge and grandiose strategies for overwhelming the devil's strongholds and making him surrender his captives. But it is easy for border guards to detect an elephant entering the country. It makes a lot of noise and and is impossible to hide. Elephants are easy to catch because they move slowly and are so visible. This seems to be how much mission work is conducted today. Instead of an army of elephants, we believe God wants to send an army of insects and crawling creatures to cause the collapse of the house of Buddha, the house of Hinduism, and the house of Muhammad. The Chinese church is not strong in human terms. We don't have a lot of money or or any grandiose plans, but we are an army of little ants, worms, and termites who know how to work underground because that is how we have learned to work in China for decades. While an elephant cannot advance into sensitive areas, little worms and ants can go anywhere. They can go into temples, mosques, and even into king's palaces. Termites are very hard to detect. They do their destructive work inside the walls of homes and underneath the floorboards. Usually, the owner of the house has no clue that his magnificent structure is being eaten away until it is too late and it collapses in a heap. The termite can do what even an elephant is unable to do. It's a mind blower. So when I read this passage, I immediately remembered the dream that I had had just before coming to this area. If you want to know how to pass the test, look to the example of the Chinese church. And God's message to me in all of this was, son, don't worry. I've got these little guys, these little worms, so to speak under my care. I'm I'm with them. I'm strengthening them through the fires out there. Continue to pray. Don't give up. Stay faithful in intercession. I will move. As the gospel goes, that the gospel would go forth in power 
as His people carried their cross in their weakness and as they stayed faithful to Him through persecution. Our season in this, uh, in this field came to a close, and we found ourselves back in the United States in 2006, uh, middle of the year, about spring. Weren't sure exactly why the Lord had brought us back or where we, He wanted us to live. We had known about a prayer ministry called the International House of Prayer for a, just a few months, and so we set aside a month to pray about it, why, where we needed to live. And while we were in Kansas City, uh, the Lord took us by surprise, honestly. I was not expecting to be in Kansas City, just as I would probably would not have expected to be here. So that's okay. The criteria of what the Lord wants isn't what you expect most of the time, so, so that's okay. But while I was in Kansas City, the, the Lord began to take me and, and my wife, uh, Emily, on a really unexpected journey. We were from, uh, both of us were from a Baptist background, although by the time we, uh, we left, our, we left uh, our, the area where we were working, we were, we, were, uh, we're, we were very hungry for the good things that, that, had been, that God had deposited in different parts of the body, different streams of the body, just a hunger and a yearning for those good things in different parts of the body to come together. We, we, why, wish, why should we have to choose between a life of intimacy and prayer and the power of God and good church planning? I mean, we just kind of got ruined with that simple vision of seeing it all come together. And so anyway, one thing that I hadn't been thinking about, though, were the two topics that God began to take us really deep in for about three years. End times and Israel. Now, you have to realize, I, you know, I went to, when I went to, to seminary, uh, we had a lot of we had Jews on campus, and we had uh, Arabs on campus, and so I would always go to the little board there and always see all kinds of interesting dialogues going back and forth on the message board, and so I, my conclusion usually from that was, all right, that's great. I, I just want to see people come to know Jesus. I'm going to do the Great Commission. I don't know anything about that, but, but so during, this, during these three years, the Lord really began to highlight end times and Israel. This was not expected. We began having dreams about it. We began, I won't go to like prophetic dreams and all this stuff and what in the world was that, God? It takes me, it's going to take me three months to, 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 to wrestle through that one. So on this journey, the question that really began to stir in my heart, and this is what the, the article uh, is about. So what I'm about to share uh, if you want it in, in more developed detail with lots of Bible verses, uh, it's on the website in, in the full article. But basically the question is, what grounds do we have to actually believe that we might be in the last generation before the Lord returns? You know, my impression of in times people before the Lord began speaking to me about it was, you know, whenever you go to the movies during the Star Wars thing and you see the lines out with people dressed up like C-3PO and... I thought, that's in times people for me. Like, they're just, that's really funny, you know, but I'm not getting into that thing. So, I had to figure out what to do with this, why the Holy Spirit was highlighting this to us. Every gener- uh, so anyway, what, what grounds do we have to actually believe that we might be in the last generation before Jesus returns? Why the urgency? Is the day of the Lord actually at hand? And so, in some form or another, in, 
with different subtopics and all these different things, this was basically uh, what the Lord had us diving into. And then how did Israel relate into that? And so I'm just going to summarize four points briefly. And I want you to follow the flow from the persecution and now moving into end times in Israel. And let's see if we can kind of connect some dots here. In my mind, aside from the fact that earthquakes, wars, famers, famines, famers, what's a famer? Famines, rumors of war have been dramatically increasing over the last century. Aside from that fact, in my mind, I can identify four things. If somebody were to ask me why you have conviction that, that the day of the Lord is at hand. So I'm just going to briefly summarize those. Number one, every generation of believers is called to have urgency concerning the day of the Lord, irrespective of their actual historical proximity to Jesus' second coming. Mark Nicewander really pounded away at that when he was here. And I just want to reaffirm that. In the article, I worked through a lot of people that seem to really have urgency about the day of the Lord, beginning with Eve. Now, Eve experienced the fall. She was kind of on pre-fall and post-fall. <laughs> She's pre- she and Adam were pretty much the only ones that had that experience. She had urgency about the day of the Lord. I explained that more in the article there, but the one I wanted to highlight here for the sake of time is Enoch. I want to read a, a passage from Jude 14 through 15, uh, verse 14 through 15. There's only one chapter in Jude. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Behold, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in in the ungodly way. That's a lot of ungodliness. And of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Enoch, it says, walked with God. What do you think was burning on Enoch's heart as he walked with God? This gives a clue. The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of holy ones, and there will be a day of reckoning every thought, every intention of the human heart that is hostile to God will be exposed and made known, and human beings will be held to account. They will give a reckoning for their lives. When he walked with God in the cool of the day like Adam and Eve, Enoch walked with God, this was the thing that was burning in his heart. Lord, I want to live a life pleasing before you. Lord, I want you to search my heart so that when this day that you've spoken to me about comes, I'm found blameless and spotless before you. It says in Hebrews 11 that, He was commended as one who pleased God, that his vision for the day of the Lord and standing before him blameless is what motivated his righteous life that God commended as pleasing in his sight. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want in my life. I want to stand before him on that day and hear him say, well done, son. Well done. You actually believed that I was going to do this. Versus all of the voices that constantly assault us, that he's never going to do that. The second reason is that there's several unfulfilled Bible passages that require and presuppose Jews, Jewish people, actually from the ethnic people, the ethnic race of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their biological descendants, 
It assumes and presupposes Jews back in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem in significant numbers at the center of the world's attention and in a state of unbelief. So I just let, if you guys read the newspapers, I don't need to really argue for that, do I? So Zechariah 14, for example, again in the article I go through a number of Bible passages you can look up. Zechariah 14, a day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. This is the second coming. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. That has not happened yet, and it requires Jews in Jerusalem for that to happen, in a state of unbelief being judged. And so, when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus, who was soon to become the Roman emperor, the Jews were scattered all over the earth again, the four winds. The pro- what, what, what happened with that was it meant that a lot of these Bible passages, the conditions necessary, presupposed by those passages, were not there, okay? And so I work through the implications of that in the article more, but the point being that in 1948, the nation of Israel, the modern nation state of Israel was founded primarily on secular principles people, uh, you know, in a state of unbelief. 1967, Jerusalem was taken by, by, uh, by Israel. And the only thing that remains for a number of Bible passages to, for the, the conditions to be in place is for the temple to be rebuilt. And I'll just say at this point, that's a controversial issue in light of the, the climate in the Middle East. But it, if you really believe in the, the integrity and authority of the Scriptures, it has to be rebuilt because some of these passages just can't happen unless it's rebuilt, okay? So it's going to happen. So here's the... Now, I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to say... A lot of people take this and they, they, they take... They do really unbiblical stuff with the way they talk about Israel, the modern nation state of Israel, that are things that are really unbiblical. And they don't necessarily... What their idea of what it means to support the Jewish people does not match what the Bible says God's idea of doing that means, okay? And so, what I'm not saying here is that, uh, just to clarify, that God supports everything that the nation state, the secular nation state of Israel, most of whom still hate God, He doesn't support everything they do, okay? And that's actually the problem. <laughs> that's the problem, is that he's, he's, he's gathered them to the land And in context to an unprecedented time of difficulty, he's going to win them back to himself on his terms, which means the gospel, okay? So I just want to state that for the record because there's a lot, there are many shades and nuances of Christian Zionism that miss enough of the facts that it creates a distorted perception or a a, a distorted understanding of what God is actually doing with the nation of Israel. But I don't want to get off on that topic too much tonight. The third point... The early church taught the concept of the millennial Sabbath. Now, what I mean by the early church, I mean 
some of the earliest Christian writers following the death of the apostles, like Irenaeus, okay? In other words, this idea of the millennial Sabbath, you can go read Hebrews 3 and 4, and there are a number of other Bible passages that relate to this idea, but it's the idea that the Messiah's kingdom is like a Sabbath rest, where we rest from the toil of our labors under the curse, and that as the day is like a thousand years, that the Messiah's kingdom, the Messianic kingdom on the earth will be a thousand years, and so the inference is that each day under the curse leading up to that is also a thousand years. Okay, now I would just, I want to read a, a passage to you from uh, the early church father Irenaeus, writing in A.D. 120, uh, sometime between A.D. 120 and 202. Irenaeus says, He gives this as a summing up of the whole of that apostasy which has taken place during 6,000 years. For in as many days as this world was made, in so many thousand years shall it be concluded. And for this reason, the Scripture says, Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all their adornment. And God brought to a conclusion upon the sixth day the works that He had made, and God rested upon the seventh day from all His works. This is an account of the things formerly created, as also it is a prophecy of what is to come, Irenaeus says. For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created, and in six days created things were completed." It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the sixth thousand, at, at the sixth thou, thousandth year. The whole apostasy of six thousand years and unrighteousness and wickedness and false prophecy and deception, for which things, for which things sake, a cataclysm of fire shall also come upon the earth. Now, this was not a fringe teaching in the earliest church. In the early church. So that makes you wonder, where did they get this? And we kind of, I kind of worked through some of that in the article too. The point being that if you accept this early church teaching, it should really cause you to raise your eyebrows because the next question would be, well, where are we in the 6,000 years? And I tell you what, by almost any Bible chronology, we're, we're in the last generation according to the early church's millennial Sabbath teaching. I encourage, uh, on, the, on the article, there's a link that goes to a, a, a chronology, which I think is the best Bible chronology that I've ever read. It's the most Bible-honoring, respectful of the authority of Scripture, and well thought through. And based on that Bible chronology, you should have a lot of conviction, if Irenaeus were in your church, that we're, getting, we're in the last generation. The fourth point that I would highlight to somebody is, what is the Spirit saying? Now, I'm not going to get into arguments about whether the Spirit still talks to us and does miracles and that kind of stuff. He does, okay? So, but the question is, we're, you know, I've been hearing more and more stories of people in the body of Christ from different cultures and backgrounds having dreams and visions related to Jesus' coming or end-time stuff. Okay, whether they're, you know, the Chinese, the Back to Jerusalem movement, God's speaking to them about the Muslim world, but they're going back to Jerusalem. Okay, they're going back to Israel, and He's also speaking to them about Israel. Uh, Egyptians that I know, it's more the Lord, the Holy Spirit, through different prophetic means, is speaking to His church in Egypt about preparing for the end times difficulties of Isaiah 19, and some of them are getting kooky enough to actually start doing some practical stuff to get ready for it. Okay. Um, I want to just 
highlight one testimony that, that a friend sent me. And I'll let, I just want you guys to let this sit in your spirit a little bit, okay? This is a dream. The Lord visited a four-year-old girl in a dream, okay? And I know the, the friend who sent me this knows this family personally. It's not just a story floating in the internet somewhere. The dream, this is his quote, The dream happened in early 2007. A four-year-old girl who was a daughter of a prominent youth pastor had a dream where Jesus appeared to her and said that she was going to be a prophetic voice in the future and that when she needed to say something, he was going to always give her the words to use. He then said that she also never needed to fear for her life because he was coming back soon and was going to meet her in the sky. She was never going to experience death because she would meet him in the clouds. Her parents are pastors at a church that does not emphasize end times or Jesus coming back. This was language that only could have come from Jesus. Her parents were rocked by this because they did not think this was true themselves, i.e. that Jesus was coming back anytime soon until the little girl told them. In 2006, my wife Emily had a dream, and in the dream, we were in this, we were in this house, and Jesus was, getting, was coming through the sky. I mean, the, we saw the light starting to come through the sky, and then she woke up. Just a month or two ago, I don't remember exactly when I had it, I had one of the most sobering dreams I've ever had. In the dream, it was literally just a five-second five snapshot, but basically what happened was I saw a friend of mine, and he was in the process of being raised from the dead at Jesus' coming. And I saw his face literally for a little flash, and I've never seen such a look of joy explode from a man's face, and a shout of joy explode with such passion in my life. It blew me away. But immediately after I heard that scream of joy and passion and excitement, and that just for a brief moment, the smile on his face and the joy coming from him, I heard the most... Um, right after that, I heard the most intense sound of terror and screaming that I'd ever heard in my life. And I knew that that was the punishment of the wicked also in context of the second coming. I woke up <gasps> like this and, okay, okay, all right, you know. My just question is, okay, at some point, I've got to stop giving pizza all the credit here. I mean, how many cultures and how many people does the Holy Spirit have to start speaking to before we get the point, before we start saying, okay, Lord, you're speaking to us. We're not listening to your voice. We're not saying that your, these experiences have any authority even close to the Bible. All these kinds of things are always tested by the Bible. The Bible is the inspired Word of God, but the Holy Spirit doesn't stop doing the things that the Bible says that He does. He does the Holy Spirit... The, things that, the ways we see him speaking in the Bible, he still speaks in those ways today too. So those would be the four things I would hammer on, and those are the things that I hammer on the article. So persecution, difficulty, faithfulness to sufferings. Okay, Israel's going to suffer. The church is going to suffer. Jesus is coming back soon. 